this week, three sides of the coin. Let's see, we talk about 707. We talk about Kiss. We talk about Ace Fraley. We talk about Whitesnake. We talk about the Sea Hags. We talk about Blue Murder, Carmine Apathy, Vinnie Vincent, Peter Chris, John Sykes. John Sykes. I know, oh, Clarence Clemens, mm. the big man. Um, lots of artists this week on Three Sides of the Coin. This is Three Sides of the Coin, talking all things KISS. I want to rock and roll all night. You're listening to Three Sides of the Coin. Want to get your official Three Sides of the Coin logo and shocker tee? Now you can. We ship worldwide. Get yours online at shop.threesidesofthecoin.com. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Three Sides of the Coin. One of your three co-hosts, Michael Brandvold. And sometimes joined by Tommy Thayer. <laughs> <laughs> Tommy Thayer? <laughs> Let's do this again. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Three Sides of the Coin. As always, your three co-hosts, I'm Michael Branville. Sometimes we're joined by Tommy Summers. Most of the time hey, we're joined by Mark Cicchini. Woohoo! We'll get the three original knuckleheads back. You guys are assholes. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> Why, thank you. <laughs> oh, okay. Speaking of assholes, because this will just immediately turn people off to think we're talking about this the whole show. So I was at Comic-Con last week. And first of all, pretty much zero KISS stuff, but I did pick up this set of KISS tattoos from the Shag store. The Shag store are the people who sell that very cool $450 print of Paul Lynn's Halloween special. But there was pretty much no KISS stuff at at Comic-Con. Um, I did run into Mork. Obviously, a lot of people dress up in costume, and there was a guy who did an awesome Mork. Robin Williams is Mork, and I got a picture with him. So over the weekend, I posted that on our Facebook, and I said, I ran into Ace Fraley at Comic-Con, and he was wearing his new costume that he's going to wear on the end of the road tour. And it was me with Mork. First of all, somebody goes, um, you know that's Mork, don't you? I go, duh, yeah. And second, secondly, somebody goes, that was so uncalled for. That was so bad of you to do that. You know, fucking ridiculous. And I'm like, dude, you got to get a freaking sense of humor. I mean, come on, really? You're going to get bent out of shape about something that everything's a joke. It's not Ace Fraley. That's not a new costume, and he's not going on the end of the road tour. Are you personally insulted and hurt by that? Because the rest of the world is having a good laugh. Ace would probably laugh at that. Yes. I, it's just like some people um, need to learn how to laugh. That's all mm-hmm. I can say. That's all I can say. Um, Tommy, do you have any comments you want to share? 
You know, not really, because most of them are about the same thing, that they really enjoyed the latest episode, which is the Ace Fraley episode, which is one of two parts. We'll share the other part with you at another date. And it I was from... Got too much going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, a, it was done last fall um, or late summer here in Minneapolis. He came in for a fan-sponsored event by Fan HQ run by Sean Hagland and his wonderful staff. And so we just decided now is a good time to pull it out and share it with you guys. So we're just getting a lot of love for it, but there's nothing in specific. Um, but I do want to say one thing, guys. It's I, I we're we're always grateful that you you know make comments, but please don't think that like Ace Fraley is going to read them and write you back. You know, because some of you keep asking questions to Ace, like he's gonna you know I don't even think he knows how to get on YouTube. I don't know. So once again, Tommy doing his job this week. I did my job, but they they're all pretty much hey, great job, really enjoyed it. So you know, what more well, do you I, want than that? Great job, that was pretty cool. I actually watched a little bit of it while you. I was invoicing today. So, mm-hmm. so I, I had a couple people over the last couple of weeks. are like, "What's with it?" I'm like, "We're all busy. Look, you still got shows. Relax." Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, 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 it's the summer, people. You know, vacations, family. And, and we're still doing this Rock for festivals. free. You know, like mm-hmm. six years later, we're seven years later, we're still doing this for free. So until we start charging you $10 a month, you don't have much to bitch about. Well, and also, too, I think it's important that, that they people know, and we should reiterate this again, is that we all made a promise to one another that family first, job second. Pinky promise. Yeah, this is number three. So if if you have work to do or you have fa- you have family things, that always takes precedence over this. This is just a hobby. Yeah, and, and, I mean, and, and, and in this case, last Tuesday I was flying down to San Diego f- to work with a client all week at Comic Con, and it was like, you know, either you guys could record without me, or and and Mark came up, or was it Mark or Tommy? One of you came up with the brilliant idea. Let's use the the the, the, the Ace Free. The Ace oh, no, that was me. I think it was that you. Was me, but, it, yeah. but it was actually Tony's yeah. idea. And then I, I, I'm the one who told you about it. You took it, credit for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it just seemed like the right time so, to do so, it. So I we mean, would rather there, give you some there content. You go. We still gave you something this week. Yeah, the interview was from last summer, but most of you have not seen that. Yeah. So, you know, we do our best, guys. We, we really, truly do. And we, we appreciate the passion. But there's just weeks we can't all be here. And like Michael said last week, he had Comic-Con all week. And I had to shoot Rockfest, which is a four-day rock festival, which we talk about later. And then, you know, the week before that, Mark was slammed with, with work because it had been raining forever in Detroit. And, and he finally and, could some concrete. And listen, if you really are so bent out of shape that you need a podcast every single week... Um, tune into Zach's podcast. It's freaking amazing. <laughs> he knows how to do it. He's been doing it for decades. He knows the ins and outs. He's as professional as it will ever come to doing podcasts. So tune into Zach. Has, he has no life at all, so he's going to be there for you. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what it looks like when your world's about this big. Oh wait a second! So between my first rant and that, the posts are going to be uh, you uh, once again spent half a show talking about how much you hate people. 
Oh, well. These are the same people. If you think this is half a show, you're the same people who don't understand how to calculate average. That never gets old. <laughs> never gets old. That that, that and Seven Eleven pasta, right? Right, Izzy? Seven yep. Eleven pasta. Never gonna get old, dude. Well, I tell he you cheated, what, he cheated on Seven Eleven the other day and went to White Castle. I saw that, but that's because he was in Which, Vegas. Yeah, but that's still that's brutal. Mm. Well, gentlemen, um, my dinner's upstairs. Mark, Mark, so. you 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 needed you wanted to do a quick plug. Bruce Kulik. Oh, for next for next. Oh yeah, for next week. Um, matter of fact, our guest next week is uh, promoting Bruce Kulik playing live here at Rock City in uh, Livonia, Michigan. And Bruce is going to be there on Friday the 9th. I will be out there. And um, we'll, we're going to, next, next week's episode, uh, my, my, my good friend Nick, who is the owner of Rock City, he's going, to be, he's going to tell you everything you need to know about it. Bruce has been there before. Um, he's really getting into, uh, he had Getty Lee at his store last week from Rush. Wow. Uh, he had Nina uh, from uh, Alice's uh band there last week so i mean he's really pushing these things uh, he's a great guy and uh lots of rock and roll stories but uh, this is bruce's second appearance uh at his store doing this and what i really like to do is i'd i'd really like to get as many three sides uh um folks out there and support bruce kulik most important show bruce and some three sides love yep and yeah. uh, i hope to see everybody out there it's be a crazy weekend for me because um Friday, I'm going to go see Bruce, and I'm going to get up really early the next morning and go to Toronto and see Iron Maiden. So, uh, lots going on. Uh, and then I got back-to-back weekends with Kiss. Going to see Kiss in Toronto. Then I'm going to see Kiss in Buffalo the following weekend. So, got to get out there and rock and roll, man. Jeez, as a matter of fact, I think in August, it's I got Bruce Kulik on Friday, the following night, Iron Maiden, following Saturday, Kiss, following... Friday kiss following Saturday Ted Nugent. So I'm seeing the tubes on Friday night. I'm going to see Frampton. Oh, I saw them a couple years ago. Yeah, today's Tuesday. I'm going to see Frampton on Thursday. So by the time this airs, I will have seen Peter Frampton's farewell show. So looking cool. Forward. cool. Yeah. You, you Again, that's something that we always preach to you. But you know, that's how you meet your friends, and especially you know, if you're especially if you're a younger person. You know, that's how I met these knuckleheads because I got off my ass and went to kiss conventions and went to concerts and your world just opens up. So hope to be, see you guys. Be, uh, before we introduce our um, special guest, I want to throw out, this is a really crazy thought I had about a week ago. You know, it's the kiss end of the road tour. Wouldn't it be kind of cool if the very last show was kiss and a bunch of other bands from their era who are also on their farewell tours. So it would be like Kiss, Bob Seger, Peter Frampton. Yellow? Uh, uh, no, they're not yeah. on a farewell tour. Maybe Ozzy if he's still touring by that time. But oh, a, Sharon will drag the a true, could, could you, how cool would it be a true end of the road show where every band, it's their absolute last show? That would be a yeah. hell of a thing to coordinate, but that would be a huge event. That would be interesting. All that right. That would be cool. So, we've got a very cool musical guest joining us. And, my God, the musical history. I mean, 
I thought it was a little bit that we were going to get, and he gave us a boatload of stuff. Trip. A trip down um, Music History Lane and not just Kiss. We're joined by Kevin Russell from the band 707, who, as a Kiss fan, you may know him because they were signed to Casablanca, and their song Megaforce, Ace Fraley and, and Todd Howarth rewrote to become Calling to You. But he's done some work with Peter Chris. He shares a, a f- great little story about meeting Vinnie Vincent through Michael James Jackson and doing some songwriting. Um, some Whitesnake stories. Some stories about a band called Sea Hags. This guy was just filled with stories. So, let it roll. Kevin Russell, 707. Two hours of KISS Radio. Every week, three sides of the coin radio. Live, Sundays, 8 p.m. Pacific. Monsters of Rock Channel, Dash Radio Network. We program the radio show. We pick the songs. No corporate overlord telling us what to play. Only KISS Deep Cuts. We play the songs the fans really want to hear. Three Sides of the Coin Radio, every Sunday, 8 p.m. Pacific. So, everyone, I want to welcome a a very cool special guest to Three Sides of the Coin. We have Kevin Russell from the band 707 joining us today. Kevin, thank you so much for calling in and joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. So um, let's. How, how, do, how do I want to start this? You know, I, I we we don't want. So all three of us are long time. I mean, we're going back to seventies. We're we're big music fans, old Kiss fans. So I think we understand the the relationship, the six degrees of separation you might have from Kiss. But we also have a sure. lot of very young fans listening to us. I mean, people who like. Right. We we had one. A- Andy Beersack was like, "Yeah, I discovered Kiss in 1992 on the Revenge album," and I'm like, "Oh my god, uh-huh. it's just crazy to understand to hear that fans are discovering Kiss that late." Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. So uh-huh. so give us a little bit. Give me give me the I don't know five minute history of of where you came from, you're from, you're from Michigan, and how did mm-hmm. 707 come to be? Okay, so I was born and raised in Detroit. Woohoo! Uh, That's where I'm from, uh, yep. by the way. All right. And so I started playing very young uh, with my older brother and my father, and uh, I started taking lessons. I think I was about six and a half, seven, and then I started playing gigs with Pops. I think I was probably 10 or 11. My older brother, Brian, is about two and a half years older. I have a younger brother, Brad, who's 10 years younger than me, who's an incredible bass player. And we played together all through the 90s. But, so Detroit, so I did what I think I could, playing around. My, my older brother and I had bands. and You know, I did a lot of stuff, a lot of different stuff, because I can read. So I did some shows that came through town. Uh, jazz singer Nancy Wilson, Joe Williams, I don't know, Temptations. And then I did clubs, five, six sets a night, five, six nights a week. You know, that goes show bands, top 40 bands, rock bands, biker bars, showrooms, Vegas-style rooms, all the way to, to the dumps. So, 76, I moved to Hollywood, and I think I knew 
one or two musicians, two guys from Detroit there. Uh, and uh, I started, you know, I hit the ground running and started doing the musician contact service, blah, 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 landed some top 40 gigs. And in 1977, it started the first lineup, which would become part of 707. We were backing up a singer and I got to play the Starwood for the first time on a Sunday with this singer. Uh, and yes, we got paid, no pay to play. We got, I think we got 125 bucks for the, for the whole thing. And well, we got paid. And, and then I met Duke McFadden on a casual gig, right? Which, you know, I think was a wedding or something. And the drummer happened to be from Detroit on that gig. His name was Jack White, who played with Rick Springfield forever. So I met Jack. I met Duke for the first time. He liked the way I played. We talked. He had some demos. I went and listened to him. He asked if I play on them. Jack, the drummer, was playing on those. And one thing led to another. I said, well... I know a couple guys who moved here from Detroit who I wasn't really, uh, we didn't have a friendship in Detroit with Jim McClarty and Phil Bryant. Those two did. I didn't, I knew of them, but I didn't know them. So actually our friendship started in Hollywood and then I got the four of us together and that started 707 and that would be 78, I think by 1978. By 79, we were playing L.A., greater L.A. area, especially Hollywood, Whiskey, Starwood, Roxy, all around, Troubadour, you name it, Madame Wong's. We played with everybody, everybody. We started the headline, and we became the darlings of Hollywood for a short time, which was really cool, being that I was only in town for not even three years, so... It was pretty cool. And then we got signed to uh, Neil Bogart and Bruce Bird came to the Starwood, signed us right out of the Starwood to Casablanca. And that's what started that relationship. So, so, so let me, let me, let me, let me ask you about that, uh-huh. that, that time frame, uh-huh. Kevin. So uh-huh. were, were uh-huh. other labels interested in pursuing you or was it sort of uh, Casablanca just happened to be there? Did they come out to pursue you? Were they seeking you out? Well, they were asked by our then management to come. We did the showcases at SIR studios, you know, like everybody did. We showcased for a lot of people. And, uh, one was John Kalopner at Atlantic, who wow. um, was the guy, guy who introduced us to that first foreigner album. And although John, of course, didn't sign us, but John had some great things to say and influenced our early direction in what they were calling, the new melodic rock at the time, right? So we continued writing. We did showcases. uh, Some people were on the fence. I think 20th century at the time was. Uh, My memory serves me correct. Maybe capital. Uh, But nobody was really pulling the trigger. But that, that particular era, 78, 79, 80, there was so much signing going on in Hollywood. You start with the Knack, Van Halen, everybody was, it seems like everybody was getting signed. So it was, and, and it was kind of all over the board, so you got to know. So we were like a pop 
melodic hard rock band, the Knack was a skinny tie band, and Van Halen, we know what they were, you know, they well, hard rock. So it, it was real, and, and, and punk was happening, so it was really a cool time musically. Uh, I, I figured we'd get a deal, but yes, Casablanca came, and, they, and I remember Neil asking if we knew much about Casablanca, and I said, well, yeah, because I knew Cher was on the label. I knew Donna Summer was, and of course, Kiss, and so and Angel. And I said, I look, you know, I said to him, "Well, you have Kiss. That's good enough for me." So, <laughs> mm-hmm. well, know, and how- I don't know where we fit in with the disco theater rock thing, you know, but we did, and you know, I was thrilled. You know, that was right before the turn of 1980. So I would say it was right around the holidays. Mm-hmm. I would say it was early December uh, of 1979, moving into 1980. So it was a, it was a wonderful Christmas gift, you know. And, and, well, we and, and how, how did you choose the name? Where does that come from? Um, the name actually is as is, is simple as this. It was originally 747, and we had had a couple of friends around Hollywood or friends of friends or something. Uh, kind of do some graphic, you know, do do a little logo thing, see how that, and so somebody brought it by rehearsal, and we took a break, and we looked at it, and I remember Jim McClarty, the drummer, and myself looking and going, hmm, Jim said, it, symmetrically it looks off. What if we change the four to a zero? And the guy, and he looked and said, oh, yeah, so the Boeing, same thing, right? 747 Jet, 707, yeah, and he, and he just kind of mocked it up, uh, on a back scratch piece of paper and we went yeah that looks better that's it we all said yeah 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 we went back to rehearsing that was it you know? wow i suppose when you know yeah. you know yeah i guess you know we didn't give it to we thought well you know if we're a number band then they have to kind of have a special bin in the record stores for us <laughs> right. Probably, well right? and we Oh, and yeah. we've heard stories about some bands who have actually you know named their band something to specifically be in a certain area of the record store. Well, yeah, we said we followed 10 CC. I mean, that's what we thought. 10 CC, they have to put him in 10. Yeah. Okay. We'll be in seven. Mm -hmm. So, so looking at Neil, Neil Bogart and Casablanca, obviously you were like, yeah, of course I'm Uh familiar with Casablanca kisses on there. Uh Um, Uh When you signed with Casablanca, um, Uh You know, okay, so this is what late '79. So obviously, Kiss is in, mm-hmm. in the Dynasty album, the Super mm-hmm. Kiss era. You know, you've mm-hmm. already we've already witnessed the solo albums, the the whole explosion mm-hmm. that Casablanca had. Um, mm-hmm. Did you immediately dive into and witness the extravagant? Um, the extravagance of Casablanca, because we basically know Neil Bogart was, you know, he'll spend he'll spend ten dollars to make five dollars. You know, everything's got to be big, bold, in your face, yeah. over the top. Uh-huh. Was uh-huh. that something you guys were thrown into immediately as well? Well, I yeah, I would say yes. No, no, I'm mm, trying to think. You know, if memory serves correct, I take myself back to that time, right? So I'm thinking, I do remember that, excuse me, 
there was um, uh, thoughts and ideas thrown around by Neil at, at meetings. Uh, with our then management and us, and they were pretty extravagant. Like, well, have you guys fly here? You know, I was like, okay. We're like, and I remember us thinking, yeah, yeah, that's cool. But we're about the we were about the music, right? We're young guys, and we're writing songs, and and you know, musicianship and the musicianship, excuse me, in seven oh seven was was pretty high. You know, we we and we were uh, real. And we really uh, prided ourselves on that, I guess, and we, and we tried to protect that as much as possible, along with songwriting and, and trying to write songs that we thought were catchy and yada yada. So that's where our mind was. I'm like, well, yeah, we're not we're not a theatrical band. We're never. You're not. You're it. not Kiss. You're not yeah. Angel. So you didn't want to go the well, costumes, big stage show. Nah, nah, nah. We were just like, nah. I mean, we had more in common with the babies than Kiss, you know. So we were, we were. Now, did that did know, that become a, a little bit of contention with Neil and the label that you didn't want to um, go that route? Um, no, but it would sometimes get in the way of certain marketing or artwork. I would say, you know, we'd be like, nah, nah, that that's that's not us. We're not doing that. So. Um, but I will say this, that for a new band, and I'm not, I, I, I kind of remember the figure, but I, I, I won't disclose it because I, I don't, I'm not 100% accurate. However, I will tell you that that original deal for a band, a young band being signed right out of the Starwood Club on Santa Monica in 1979, we had a multiple record deal and our first budget was really high for a brand new unsigned band. And the second uh, record, because you know, I mean, we didn't we didn't sell those kind of numbers, so we certainly didn't warrant what the budget would go to for the second album. But that was Neil. And having said all that, you guys, um, there was a lot of missing funds from. Uh, then management and people around us, and so uh, there was, you know, that's that that's the evil side of of of, of the good, you know. We got, we couldn't believe it, but that was Neil. I mean, nobody was getting those kind of, you know, other bands were getting deals, but they weren't getting those kind of deals, which included a live album down the road, which didn't happen. I mean, it happened later on, but it didn't happen at Casablanca. Uh, development, uh, tour support. Uh, all of those things that are virtually unheard of today. I was just talking about this with some young, younger musicians. Yeah, I just saw, I saw I saw saw your recent Facebook post just talking about the difference in the music okay. industry from today go. as back then. Yeah, I know we were we were we were taken care of, um, but there was all, we were kept in the dark most of the time when it came to business and money and that's the truth you guys so and 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 by by your by being kept in the dark are you meaning management or the label or both were not telling you how much was being spent and how much you owed both yep yep so we didn't know you know we really didn't know i mean until you know, such time when things hit the fans, <laughs> then you find out real soon. You know, there, 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 you there, know? there's a lot of, obviously, a lot of people, especially people like you who were in the music industry 
pre-internet versus post-internet who talk about right. how, how good it was, how great it was. But at the same time, let me ask you, um, uh-huh. you know, we hear all of the stories about so many bands going into massive debt to the record label because, uh-huh. I mean, for, for our listeners who don't know, you know, if, if a label advances you $500,000, that's money that you use to record or tour or tour support money, but you have to pay that all back and it all comes out of record sales. And if the record doesn't sell, you still owe that money. And hopefully they're going to try and recoup with the second album or the third album. But eventually you may end up with no record deal with that record mm-hmm. company and you still owe them a million dollars. Is that kind of the, the nasty downside of what it used to be? Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you pretty well summed it up. Yeah. There, I mean, as much good was probably, you know, a lot, a lot more bad. So you know, this is VH1 behind the music stuff, you guys. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and that, that's why it's a typical story. That's why behind the music was so fascinating because most fans don't have any idea. They just think, "Oh my God, you've got," <laughs> you know, "I'm I'm hearing, I could be good for you all over the radio. You guys must be millionaires." And you're sitting here going, "Oh yeah, um, oh, no, yeah. maybe oh, the yeah. president of the record label's a millionaire, but you know, yeah. I'm still yeah. renting." No, no, no. And we, and you know, they yeah. still. They still played on KQ in heavy rotation in Minneapolis to uh-huh. this day. Uh-huh. We, I hear uh-huh. it uh-huh. probably once every week or two. Yeah, and I have friends who live in Minneapolis. Yeah, for sure. In St. Louis, too, in Detroit, you know. And, and yeah, you know, the royalties. You get the royalties every, every, every quarter. And, you know, but here you are out on tour. Let's just fast forward a little bit. So we're on the number one tour that year, 1981, REO's High Infidelity Tour. So we're on that tour. Wow, that's huge at that time. It it was, no, it's huge. So we go from playing Starwood, Whiskey, the Greek Theater in LA to 10,000 theaters to 20,000 theaters as REO, as that album started to blow up more for them. We witnessed them, you know, uh, uh, playing bigger venues and blowing up huge. So we were kind of riding that wave with them and we were the opening act and everything about it was, was good. And we all got along and they loved us. So here you are on a number one tour. And of course, when you kick into good for you, the arena erupts and that is just huge. So that's, and that's the power of radios. And so radio, they already missed the radio. We never played that town before. So, you know, you, it was the power of rock radio and, and, and Casablanca keeping us out on tour. <clears throat> Again, everything recoupable. So your talk and buses and crews and everything I stated in my blurb on the 707 about the record industry. I mean, every crew, gear, everything was underwritten. They paid for everything. Let, so, let, me, let me ask you real quick, yeah. Kevin, Kevin, and you don't need to necessarily uh-huh. reveal a figure, but when you were out on the road opening for REO Speedwagon, were you guys mm-hmm. getting paid anything per show? Yeah. Mm, well, yes. Yes. Uh, I don't know what that was. It probably wasn't a lot of money. It cle- I mean, and let's let you know, we can tell people it clearly wasn't enough to support the band to remain on the road. That's why the record label had to pay for a tour bus and a road crew and backline and food and all that other stuff that you need to oh, be on the road. Fuel. 
Yeah. So, you know, you're out there to the tune of 25, 30 grand a week, right? I mean, then, yeah, $1. Yeah, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. So you're going to ching to ching and you're out for a month, month and a half, two months. You can do the math. So, you know, pre MTV, MTV had not come about yet. So exposure is you're out there on the number one tour and you're playing. Now I will say there was a lot of discrepancy as to why our product was not in all the record stores in every city we went. And that was a fight between management and Casablanca, their, their promotion department and A&R department. That, that battle went on and on. And I can name all those names, but I won't. And uh, what was not happening. And so it was frustrating. Also, we're on a small salary. So here's what I do know. You're on a number now. Any young listeners, and here's the deal. So you're on a number one tour. You've got a, a, a pretty good rock radio hit going. And you're on a number one tour playing arenas every night, night after night, probably five nights a week. And I'm struggling still to pay my rent in a little two-bedroom apartment in Sherman Oaks. Yep. What's wrong with that picture? What's wrong with that picture? Well, what's wrong with that picture is you're a 20-something-year-old, and you you know it's like you don't like it, then you can leave or you can you know. So when you when you wow, boy, how do I say this? When the tables are turned and you're young and it, everything goes askew and you believe that you're now working for management, the record company, and the booking agent. What's wrong with that? Uh, no us, no them. No artists. You people, none of you people have jobs. Uh, and not 707, but they just go on and on with the biggest artists of that time. So you see what I'm saying? Things got but that's kind of how the real estate industry... Well, that's kind of how the real estate industry is to a certain degree, which mm -hmm. is what I do. Mm -hmm. I sell residential real estate. And some of these uh -huh. companies, it's almost, like, it's almost like, well, God, if we could just get rid of the realtors, we'd have a perfect business formula. You know, and, and I, I think that the, the it seems like the record labels to a certain degree are like that. Like the, the artist is just a means to the end of getting the money. And it's like you guys are just in the way. Well, and, you know, disposable and, you know, and hey, and look what's happening today. I mean, so I was talking to somebody about all those 90s groups, right? And there was some show anyway. And how many, one song, gone. One album, gone gone and and you go they don't even have a chance and then as time progressed you had to be a platinum a platinum selling artist to even be considered as an opening act and here we were back then with no 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 we're just you know we we're a new band we had no track record and we're on number one tour so how things have changed and we weren't the only band that had that option you know you you read you know how uh, you know Cheap Trick took out. You know, uh, uh, um, I mean how Kiss took out Cheap Trick, or how this band, or Nuge, or Aerosmith took out so and so, Guns N' Roses, and da da da. Or I mean, go back further. But now, and I talked about how the industry has changed. Three sixty deals. You know, I mean the record yeah. label. In spite of everything, they didn't touch our publishing or our merchandising or our ticket sales. 
And we did do some headline gigs in and around on off nights with Aria. We would go into a small theater or club and headline and sell it out. So we could make a little something for ourselves. So I think that the Casablanca, I also remember they had a back lot on one of, at one of the studios in Hollywood, which was huge, which we all would rehearse in. Staggered that they'd make the schedule out for the month and share rehearsed there. Village people rehearsed there. We rehearsed there. Angel rehearsed there. And everybody's gear was kind of all stacked up, uh, you know, in a row. And you just uh, move it after you're done. And and, 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 really the, and the cool. funny thing is, Kevin, you didn't get to rehearse there uh-huh. for free because they probably added some fee onto your your uh, your all statement that. saying, oh, yeah, you rehearsed for seven days at $1,000 a day. Here you go. We're just adding it mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. recoupment. Because at the end of the day, I, I imagine the frustrating part is, yes, you're you're on this massive tour. You've got a good radio song going. Albums are selling. You might not be selling platinum mm-hmm. status. So obviously mm-hmm. money is coming in, but it's not mm-hmm. it's not flowing down. It's not trickling down to you. And you gotta you you kind of scratch your head, going, well, where's it all going? Who's getting the money if we're not getting it? Yeah, and yeah, and management would take advances on behalf of the band, and we never knew about that really much much of that or what the figures were. So it was, you know, it was always a, you know, it was always a, a very uh, 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 in the dark situation and, and frustrating. And but you're young, and you know, you're in it for the music, and you believe that you're going to do that. You're opening for the headliner and you believe in the very near future, you're going to be in that position. And, um, you know, and you have a shot, but you know, it was, it was, uh, you know, that time and a lot of greed and a lot of, uh, you know, underhanded stuff and, yeah, I mean it's all my memoirs, and one day it's coming out as a book, and it's you know the good, the bad, and the ugly. But it's my story, and I'm sticking to it, guys. And, you know, oh, yeah. I remember it. So I, I remember that tour like it was yesterday. I, I saw you guys at the Met Center in, Min- in Bloomington, Minnesota, and you guys played mm-hmm. two nights with Ario, and that was a mm-hmm. the one and only time I saw you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, so what a, a cool band. tour to be a yeah. part of. You know. Yeah, and still friends to this day. Uh, you know, well, my my buddy, uh, good buddy Dave Amato, is a guitar player in Ario. Uh, yes, for yep. years now. Yeah, uh, but I still am buddies with uh, Kevin and and Bruce and Neil, more so with Kev and Bruce. Uh huh. And I see them when they come to town, and we still get called to go. And so that relationship has lasted the test of time, and. You know, so there was good things that came from those tours, and I'm still friends with a lot of people that I met in 81 and 82 in 707's heavy touring time, and I'm still friends with most of those people today, you know, in the network of musician friends, and and um, which is, you know, the, the, the good part. And, and, and you know, I, I focus on the good today, and, and uh, you know, I always said I had a ticket to the big spin, which is more than most that I know ever had. So uh, I did, I experienced it. And from there, 
I was able to continue to work and I still work today full time as a player and still get paid to play guitar decent. And, you know, it's all good. Seven, I would tell you this though, you guys, 707 always, I just said this to someone in a, in a quote in an interview, that band always had a lot more respect than we ever did notoriety or money, you know, and that's, and that's the truth. So that name still opens doors for me today with managers and other musicians of my era. Uh, in other words, to this day, you know, that's huge. I send, send an email out or a call and they go 707, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. Boom. So whether it, you know, wherever it goes from there, it's, you know, a subject. However, my point is that Ben had a lot of respect and let, that was really important to me. Let me, let me ask you, Kevin. So in the early eighties, as you said, you're out, you're doing these tours that, and, mm -hmm. and you were signed to Casablanca. That was obviously a a period of turmoil basically within Casablanca I mean Kiss was oh, yeah. oh, Kiss yeah. was becoming dysfunctional the label was becoming that way um oh, did yeah. you guys oh, yeah. feel that and sense that oh yeah oh god yeah oh yeah yeah and and had some heated arguments about it too at some lunches on sunset there across from Ar arguments office. with the label, arguments with management. Yeah, yeah, and, the, and our people, yeah, yeah, and the promotion guys. And, uh -huh, uh -huh. and, you know, of course, Neil's illness was um, kept from us. And so, you know, uh, we had made a third record called The Bridge, which got shelved for many, many years and only was re-released in 2006. And it was released for the first time, excuse me, in 2006 through the German label. Um and then we made that record for Casablanca, only to find out that Joyce, you know, wife, had frozen the phone and da 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 da, and we didn't know how grave it was for me. And then uh, find out he passed away, and shit hit the fan, and we're like, what now? But uh, Bruce Bird went and started with someone else, Boardwalk. Boardwalk, yep. Um, took us over to board. Well, I think Joan Jett was also a signing and Night Ranger. I think the three of us. Um, however, they didn't, the, a, the promotion staff, everybody at Boardwalk did not feel they were part of the bridge record. So it got shelved and they wanted us to start a new album, which became Megaforce, right? So, so, so how, 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 how frustrating was it to, again, huge tour, first albums got, you know, uh, you were very fortunate because how many bands have first album come out and get no radio hits? You've got a radio hit that's still a staple and then your right. record label falls apart on you. Is that yeah. sort of panic mode? Yeah. Well, we did the second album. So actually, when we were touring, we were touring behind two albums. We had a, the second album had already been out and recorded. So we had the first album, we had the second album. That was confusing. And then we went home and we were writing Yes for the bridge. And, and, we, and Todd Howarth came in after that uh, first tour in 1980, which was a club tour that we had lined and sold out everywhere in small theaters. And then we came back and we hired a piano player because you know, Duke McFadden was out before before we ever toured uh, on the first album. 
So then that was, oh my God, we got to do another album. They passed the line and said, okay, Duke's gone. You need to do another album. So we did. We hired a guy. Jay Winding, the producer, played some piano. That's how that went. So now we tour behind two albums. Then we decide that we need to find that fourth guy. So we held auditions and we hired Todd Howard. And uh, he also doubled on guitar. And it was a good thing. So we did those tours with Dario, the 81, 80, 81, 82, with Todd. Then we started writing for that bridge record with Todd and me and Phil and Jim. So that, yeah, we put a lot into that record, a lot into that record, because we were the new four-piece, right? We were the new band with a solid fourth guy who was real creative and talented, Todd. So we put a lot into that. We thought it was really a great record, only to find out the turmoil, right? Of course, we were crushed and pissed, you know? And so now we're getting pressure that we need a quote-unquote focal point up front. We need, instead of having these multiple lead singers. I wanted to ask you about that, because as, as, your yeah. wic- as, as the band's wiki page described it so so well you were typical of a lot of 70s bands who not didn't necessarily have a single lead singer but had just like kiss multiple people who could sing lead and sticks was another example that was listed but then all of a sudden the label says "Uh uh-uh we don't want that anymore we just want one lead singer Um, we want a steve perry we want a lou graham we want a we want a we want a whatever how, how yeah. you know from from your standpoint, how difficult is it to get that sort of forceful suggestion? Because I'm sure they were being very forceful about it, and try mm-hmm. to stand up and say, "No, that's not who we are. That's not what mm-hmm. got us here. That's not what created that first single." Um, mm-hmm. You know, you want to change mm-hmm. it to something that may not work at all. I mean, is that is that again? Is that frustrating? That that you're yeah, being forced yeah. to something you're not. Yeah. Yeah. It's frustrating. Especially young guys, you know, with we're being coerced and, you know, and it's always that heavy, heavy hang over your head. Well, if you don't cooperate, you know, what? You can't fire me from my own band. I used to think, well, what? So it was frustrating. And it was, cause you know, that band was put together by design. Right? The first design being Beatles. Right, a singer. Everybody sings. Yeah, uh, Chicago, Chicago, Beach Boys, like you said, Sticks, uh, the Eagles for crying out loud. So yeah. we said, yeah, no, no, we're going to have where everybody's going to get a shot at singing, even in, 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 and if it doesn't necessarily have to be your song, um, if someone else, you know, we we're always by committee, so we tried Phil singing it. I'd sing it. Duke would sing it, and then finally, you know, Phil was Phil. Phil was the voice. Phil was our Pete Cetera. So, yes, adding Kevin Shelfon, we lost Phil. Mm-hmm. But the part I don't understand, but the part I don't understand about this is if you guys are producing really good songs, what does it matter how many singers are in the band? Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean if the music <laughs> <Right>. is good. <laughs> I mean, you know, right? I mean, yeah. I just, what, what, you know, and this guy can sing. Even this guy sings verses, and he sings the chorus, and and, and or you trade off, or Terry yeah. Cass and Pete Cetera did. And, and I go, I, I didn't get it. I didn't get. I didn't get it. But you know, when you look, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right, guys? So you look back and you go, well, yeah, everybody wanted one of those. 
every record label wants one of those. Well, what's one? Well, the new rock is Journey and Foreigner. Well, we want one of those. We want, that's the new model. That's new melodic rock yeah but that's to me that's like that's like taking a quarterback and asking him to play running back you know instead of just build on your strengths so if you have really good strong musicianship and and singers in a band why wouldn't you utilize all the talent yeah yeah no i guess i just don't get it i don't understand that no and so we we agreed and we auditioned lead singers and we agreed and you know that kevin was Kevin was in the band for a short time, you know, he had one album and, and one tour in, I think, I don't know, nine months, maybe 10 months total. It was less than a year. So figure that one. And I had put the band together in 78. So everybody can do the math, you know, I mean, it was, it was my band and, and, you know, and I was, um, I guess, you know, uh, uh, tenacious, uh, um, blind ambition, bullheaded enough to say, I'm going to surround myself with these people, whether it was functional, whether Duke, Jim, Phil, and Kevin were all functional. Well, young guys, we don't know issues who has issues and this and that undealt with. You don't know that stuff, but I was strong enough to said that these four guys, this is a magic here. And I will not go on record as saying no pun that that first album is still my favorite album. That is the band that will always be the band. That is the band, you guys. That's the magic. That's the band. And so everything else was some kind of being talked into something, coerced into something, threatened by, scared, and every change. So you know that every record was a different lineup, you know? And uh, how confusing is that? You know, uh, the main stage on those albums were Kevin, Phil, and Jim, myself, uh, Phil, and Jim. And then later on, it would just be me um, as the main stage. So I've been the one who's kept that a lot, kept that name going. Let's, Mm -hmm. let's, Let's jump to the, the album and the song Megaforce, which for Uh Kiss slash ace fraley fans Uh they they need to listen to it if they haven't because you've heard this song before you've you've heard ace fraley do his rewrite i guess you could say of megaforce calling 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 to you is is ace's version of it um Mm -hmm. talk to me about the megaforce song because you know that that that's your other hit song that's the song the fans are most known for you know that they they they, yeah. they recognize uh-huh. for you um you know mm-hmm. did that kind of give you a recharge of oh my god we 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 we, we hit it again we've got another song that's on well, radio yeah it it, mm, it was written in my i moved up to marin county in the early 80s and that song was written in little townhouse that we had in San Rafael with Todd and Jim. Uh, Shelfont was not in the band yet. So the Megaforce album, uh, I would say 95% was already written. 
before Shelfont, before all this came down, audition singers, right? So we were writing and because we knew we had to get started on another album because the bridge was rejected uh, by Boardwalk. So now management says we're, we need, um, they, uh, excuse me, let me think now, that the label needs a song title track for a new film starring Barry Bostwick called Megaforce. And the title has to be in the song. You don't have to be so literal, but it has to, that has to be some kind of hook in the song. So we, okay. So Jim McClarty was the one main guy writing lyrics for the band, especially that era. So we kind of left that for Jim and Todd and I, and with Jim's input, Todd and I worked on that music. And so we uh, don't know how it, or, you know, what was the catalyst for it? I guess it was in the same key as good for you. And kind of, I kind of twisted the lick around a little bit. If you listen closely, now that I reveal it, I, I, it's not exactly the same as good for you, but it has moving elements in it like good for you. So sticking with that formula, but trying to modernize, right? Things are really happening faster nowadays. You guys know that, man. Things are changing fast, rapidly. So we want to adapt and love her boys huge at that time, right? So it's kind of a new rock thing. There's little elements of this and that. So Todd and I took heed of everything around us while writing that. Then enter Keith Olsen, the number one, arguably the number one rock producer at that time. I mean, he had how many hits going Olson. So now we're going to have a meeting. We're flying down to LA Pacific Palisades or Brentwood or wherever Keith was living at the time. And we're going to have a meeting at Keith's house about this song and this film clip, this little uh, clip of where it's going to go or a little clip of the movie or something. I forget. So we meet Mr. Keith Olson, right, on his house. And I think it was all of us. I don't know if Phil was there. But Todd was certainly there. I was there. And Jim was there. And, uh, yeah, we got the feeling that we were being told what to do, like little schoolboys, and that we uh, were nothing, knew nothing, and... He was Keith Olsen. We were, we were at the altar of Keith Olsen. So that's, we kind of walked away with that distinct impression that it was going to go his way and that we were going to be doing what we were told. But we had a pretty cool song, and that we knew, and he knew it too. So now we bring Shelfont down. For, I think we might have kept him out of that meeting. I don't know. But... Yeah, so um, the, uh, I don't think he was going to produce the entire album. It was just that song. And so we went to his studio, Goodnight L.A., and uh, Van Nuys or whatever it was there. Did all of that sort of, was that the last nail in the coffin, I guess, for the band? I think everything, Keith Olsen and I had a huge blowout. Huge. And... Um, it got real bad and it got real bad to me and Chalfant too at that time. And, um, I, I was, I was, yeah, mm -hmm. you asked me, I'm giving you an honest answer. I was, I was really resentful. I went into it very resentful. 
And um, I think Todd stood with me. I think Jim did. Um, Phil was confused. And, and he was always such a, a wonderful soul. Did, 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 did it help soften anything at all that the Megaforce song was fairly well received? Or were you just sort of at the point of, I just don't care because that song really isn't us anyway? Uh, yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, I didn't really care. I was indifferent. Yeah, I didn't care. I heard it on the radio all the time. I was indifferent. You know, uh, I did not uh, I did not want to become the son of Journey. I did not. That was never my uh, uh, goal for the band. That was never my musical uh, aspirations as a band. Um no. And so, uh, you know, it became something that started to me started to sound like everybody else. And I was really disheartened by that um, and uh, disillusioned and, and pissed off. And I'm, you know, 20 something. And, you know, and I'm partaking. I'll say this to you guys God willing. I'll be 29 years sober, so good for you. You know, things change. Yeah, and thank congratulations. You. That's awesome. Well, thank you, but I, I say it because then I was not. So you now everything I told you, you, just add that into the mix. Sure, and yeah, it can get explosive. And so it was, a, you know, it was a very explosive situation. Uh, you can imagine, and there was a lot of resentment all around, and the management was pitting. Uh, us against each other, divide and conquer, and uh, end up with nothing. So it was a really bad time for the band. And I, and we went out on the 82, uh, 82 tour with REO, and then we did a tour with Nuge and the Rockets. And Ted and I go back a lifetime. We have been guitar teachers, so I've known Ted forever. And so, you know, yeah, the band was breaking up there. I, I guess maybe we didn't know it, but I kind of knew it. And we were breaking up on tour, and it was just, it, I just uh, uh, wanted it to be over, as painful as it was. I just wanted it to end, but when it did end, I was crushed. But it was very painful for me, and um, I just, uh, I knew we lost our way. What else can I tell you other than... Um, we were headed back that way with Todd on the bridge album. We were getting back to, I want so desperately to try to recapture some of that early 707 magic stuff and with the grand piano and stuff. So that was, that was the goal was to, um, to, to stay the course, if you will. Well, mm -hmm. well Todd's a very That's talented cool. musician, so it oh, doesn't yeah. surprise I me. I mean, for Todd. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, but, but I suppose too, it's got to be hard to be in a band where you have a vision of something and it's hard to get back there. And on top of it, music styles just keep changing. Because think about it from the time you started, the first record you put out, how much things had changed by like 1985, even 86. It shifted yeah. so much. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it sure did. And, you know, and, and you try to adapt and you don't want to be, uh, you don't want to be left behind, but there's a lot to be said for staying the course of staying to thy own self, be true of what it is that you really do. And, uh, but like I said, a, a few minutes ago, you guys, when Phil left, uh, there was no, 
there was no coming back from that for me. I lost my partner on stage. I lost my buddy. I lost my singing partner, my buddy, uh, my co-front guy. Uh, I still love Phil uh, today as much as I ever could or have. And so, you know, I, I, I was heartbroken. And so when he didn't do that tour with us and Felix Robinson from Angel stepped in to do that 82 tour, uh, we had no idea. Management said we got a bass player. I'm like, oh, okay. So, uh, you know, it, I, was, I was lost. I was lost, you know. It was, <laughs> it was tough, man. So That's rough. You know, and now we're out there singing I Could Be Good For You and Chalfonce singing that. And it's just, everything was not, didn't feel right about it. So, 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 Kevin, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, if it even involved you, Ace and Todd Howarth taking the Megaforce song and, and rewriting mm-hmm. it as calling to you? Did they approach you on this? Did you have any say mm-hmm. on it? Mm-hmm. 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 No, Todd, Todd, uh, no, Todd was great about it. Todd called me up one evening, and mm, our relationship was kind of strained at that time because of the breakup, you know, as you can expect. And, but he said that they were <clears throat> going to consider putting Megaforce on the record, but Ace, I guess he was on Megaforce? He was on Megaforce Records, was, yeah. Okay, so he thought it was too weird or something and wanted to change it. Nowhere in the song did he want Megaforce. The complete opposite from what we were told, right? It has to have Megaforce, like I said before, you know, it's this title track of the film, so it has to have this in there, and that's that. So, so yeah, you have to incorporate that word in there. If not the hook, it has to come up. So, so now this is the complete opposite. Now it's like we don't want that <laughs> word Megaforce. To work, Re- that rewrite kind of the, song the song that you were forced all. to write. <laughs> Right, so we write the song, take out Megaforce, calling to you. Todd said, we're going to redo this, redo that. By the way, Ace is going to take a piece. He's going to cut himself in for a quarter. And if that if that isn't uh, agreeable with you and Jim, then he's prepared to not do it. Um or something. And it was pretty well agree to this or he's not going to, we're not going to do it on the record. And, and so, right. so basically it's another situation where you are basically being forced into something. Yeah. I mean, I could have said no, but I was like, well, okay. You know, now, 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 you know, I'm scraping for money. I'm all but broke. I'm going through lawsuits with management. You know, it's, it's a big deal. This, this period here. So this, by the time this first, uh, Comet record comes around, so I could use the money. And I'm figuring a quarter of publishing and writing. Well, yeah, I'll hold on to that. He's on what Atlantic, I guess, was the parent company. Yeah. So I'll get. So uh, my first check was decent, but you know, then it dwindled from there. And then they stopped paying me. That's a whole other story. So, you know, like so much of the industry, they just they'll bait you and you know try to come after us. They had a couple more zeros. I think you could, but <laughs> it doesn't. So, so that figures it, and, and it's a standoff. You may know it, and then that they're Atlantic, you're not. So it, it's more bullshit. But they did it. Um, I was okay with it. 
I was okay with it. I was never, never thought it was like, wow. You know, I was okay with it. Okay with the final song and how it, how it sounded? Yeah. Okay. I was okay with it. I think Jim was okay with it too. You know, we weren't knocked out. I mean, it's, it's not 707's version of what, you know, no, no, it's, it's not Megaforce. Come on. But I, I was okay with it. I actually saw Todd when he came through, I think, on his first tour here in the Bay Area, and, I, and they did do that live, and that was cool. And, and, you know, and it was fun, and, yeah, and I talked to Ace about it, and he, he, uh, he loved it, and he told me he just loved it. He loved my guitar playing. He loved what I did on it, man. You're a hell of a guitar player, you would tell me, and, Oh, Everybody's you. got Ace Fraley impressions. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's funny. I mean, Everyone does. Hey, Curly's right. So, so you know, hey, I'll tell you. I remember when we were at the Starwood, and one of the promotion guys, or and our guys at Casablanca, told me Peter was out. That news hadn't even hit the wire yet. But a few beers, you know, yep. loose lips and ships. So he told, I'm like, what? Because we were, I was friends with this guy at the label, and we were, we were buddies, and we'd go out to lunch together. So, so he cornered me and said, hey, man, you know, Peter's out. I'm like, what? You know, yeah, man. I mean, I'm, you can't say a word. Nobody. But, yeah, I, I remember getting that. What was that 1980, maybe? Mm-hmm. 80, yeah. 80? Yep. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So we're doing one of our final shows at Star Wars or something. Uh, before we start recording and um yeah i was like wow so that was interesting and i remember 1982 writing for i don't know if it was a metaphor the 83 i'm right ah I'm sorry, forgive me, 82, late 82, 82. Anyway, I'm down in L.A. during a writing session. Uh, me and Shelfont are trying to get some songs together for, I don't know, potentially another record, we think. I don't know, maybe we kissed and made up for a minute. I, I, I'm trying to think. But anyway, I'm down with the engine, staying at the engineer's house, George Tutko, rest his soul, uh, engineered uh, 707. Uh, the second album, and um, co-produced Megaforce with me, that album. So we're at George's house in the hills, and Michael J. Jackson? Michael James Jackson, who who is producing the Creatures of the Night album for Kiss. There you go, there you go. Okay, there's the timeline. So he's interested in 707, or whatever is left of that, whatever came out of those ashes of that band, the name, that's all he was going on. So I guess it was me and Kevin at the time trying to see what we could do. So he says, I want to get you together with a guy who plays guitar, but he's a songwriter. And I sent your management a cassette of some of his songs a while back. And uh, his name is Vinnie Cassano. And I go, oh, yeah. I go, I have that cassette at home somewhere. I listen to those songs. 
I go, he's like an East Coast guy, Italian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm Italian too. So yeah, yeah, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, all good. You guys are going to get along great. So me, Kevin, and Vinny Cassano, a.k.a. Vinny Vincent, are writing in Hollywood at George's house, working on some stuff. And he's pushing some of his songs heavy back on the streets, and he's pushing some of his stuff on He He's pushing his songs heavy. And so I hear through Michael, that Ace is out and Vinny's going to be the new guy. So I'm sitting on this knowledge, you guys. Here's some inside stuff. Truth. Truth. And I'm sitting on the living room floor of George Tucko's house in Hollywood with Vinny, Chalfant, and me sitting on the information. I don't even know if Kevin knew Shalfan, but I knew that he was a new guitar player. So I point blank asked him. He denied it to my face. Said, oh my God, where'd you hear that? I'm just writing, I'm co-writing some stuff with the band. No, you forget that like I'm friends with, you know, all these Casablanca guys, you know? Yeah. I'm thinking, you know, I know. So lo and behold, you know, he's the guy. He's, he, he becomes the guy. And so that was um, that connection there. And then I met with Michael a few times. Uh, he had some other writers that I got together with. And then, of course, nothing materialized. And Shelfont and I finally had the final, final blowout. And that was that. And then there was no other 707 record at that time to be made. But I was we'll ta- talk a little writing. bit more about Vinny. What was it like writing? Uh, with what kind of impression did he make on you? Uh, 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 well, I don't know, because he and I talked several times on the phone after. I came back to Bay Area, and he and I would talk periodically, but enough times, maybe six, eight times. Um, he, uh, as, as a guy, a hungry, you know, uh, talented, uh, uh, mm, I don't know. He made that good of an impression. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, you know, he that he was trying to work the business, you know, and trying to be savvy, and and he was talented enough, and he was trying to play. Although we're probably he's probably my age or older, but he was trying to play more modern guitar than I was interested in playing. You know, I'm a classic rock blues soul guy and he was trying to do you know the new craze at that time as i called it uh, well, and eddie was the guy for me or randy but he was trying to you know randy bar and capping so he was trying to play that style and but um i wasn't sure i wasn't sure where i, I wasn't sure of him you know i wasn't you know, I didn't know what to what to think at the time. I I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't really sure what to think of this guy. Um, but I thought he had some good songs. That's what I did know. I said, I think this guy's got some talent here. I mean, as a songwriter, I don't know about him as a singer or necessarily a player, but I think he's got some good good songs or good good ideas here for choruses and things. I remember thinking that, you guys. In all honesty, well, not, not meeting him, just listening to a cassette yeah. before I ever met him. And yeah. I thought, there's some talent here, man. And, um, 
if you could just harness that. <laughs> yeah, well, because he's one of the he's one of the guys that's been in the band that seems to be the most polarizing. He's got some of the most hardcore fans of the group. I mean, Ace is right up there too, but um, it's just Vinny is one of those. You know, because he disappeared for so long that it's interesting to get a little insight from someone who knew him back then. Because to your point, being more of a classic guitar player and, and liking, you know, rock and rhythm and blues and all that, this is different than he was trying. My complaint was always it was it sounded like bees buzzing, you know. I, the, I guess the, you know, as a lot of those guys, yeah. I guess they were everybody was trying to trying to do that get on that bandwagon so yeah to, to get higher to get higher like, yeah because like randy rhodes seemed to eddie changed it and then and then it seems like randy rhodes added to it there you go and and i and i was buddies with randy and quiet right in 707 did a lot of shows around hollywood and a lot of star wars shows together and uh, he was one of the sweetest guys randy uh, i knew he was different I let him use my marshals a couple times at Starwood because he was having trouble getting tone out of his amps and he was using some weird shit. And I said, man, just use mine. He's like, what? And yeah, yeah, I'll leave him up there for you. We opened and, he's, and he was on the street. He had a white custom Les Paul and I had a black. Early 70s and he had an early 70s. And we remember trading in the dressing room and playing each other's guitars. And he had a lot of respect for me and I, I for him because I played that rock soul Detroit style that he uh, was very foreign to him, but he loved it. But that was, and then he played a completely different style that was new to me. That was a, a little modern, but wacky, but classical yeah. at the same time. And so we got along that way. I will, I will interject that right now as he's one of those guys that I always remember uh, in my heart as a really beautiful soul and a really good guy. Well, and, and um, he, I was, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just going to say, he really seemed to make, for how short of a time frame he was around, he mm -hmm. sure seemed to make an impression on a lot of people, not only encouraging them to pick up music, uh, guitar, and learn how to play, but just fans in general who love music i mean i can't think of anybody other than like you know obviously there's the, the ones like eddie van halen and eric clapton depending on who you know the type of music you like and generational but boy mm -hmm. people sure mm -hmm. seem to gravitate towards him yeah and i think it was that kind soul but i think uh, me being a teacher of many years now too and he was a teacher i think it was that side that that giving side, that patient side, that wanting to um, see people excel and see them, you know, it was that side that he had at a young age that I would get through sobriety uh, teaching as many years as I have now. So, and he had that then, and I, I would have to say that came from his teachings. He was that kind of patient guy and giving soul. So, uh, which, you know, I don't know that Vinny was that guy when I met him. So, you know, I don't know. I spent a short time with Randy and that was my take on that. And then other people uh, I certainly met and played with and co-build with many, many musicians and artists and some very accomplished, some more notoriety than accomplished musicians and others have both and so everywhere in between you guys so 
you know, you kind of get a take pretty, pretty, pretty quick. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, yeah. And I, 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 that Casablanca kiss, because I know, uh, this centering around the kiss thing, you know, your, your show. And so the 707, we had been circling around that kiss camp for quite a while. Um, I did not know that, that they were not all the guys, maybe Paul, I know certainly Peter, and then maybe later Ace were aware of 707. I did not know this till later years. I did not know that they had listened to our music. I did not know that I was being listened to. That was told to me. Um, I forget the then manager. Uh, who was managing Kiss then? Uh, was it Bill Coyne? When Ace was out. Oh, was it Bill? Bill Coyne? Ace was out. Was, was Bill still on the scene? Maybe. But I got a call from some camp, and they were talking about guitar players. However, it was kind of decided that I might be a little too pop or something. Um, you know, I, I, it's, no. it's, 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 I just find it very interesting that you brought this up in in the natural course of this conversation because we've we've had michael james jackson on a couple times and um one of the the things he really kind of a point he made was during the creatures of the night era he he basically and i'm just paraphrasing that kiss needed songwriting and that michael reached out to everybody he knew to help Mm -hmm. with potential songwriting and and you know, the end result, the album is a phenomenal album. It's great songs. Mm-hmm. But one of the mm-hmm. things that's very obvious, especially when it comes to the guitar playing, is there's there isn't one single lead guitarist throughout that album. They had, I don't know, five, six, I can't remember the total number of different lead guitarists who, who played on different songs throughout that album. Came in. Right. Came in, right. just recorded in. the lead for one song, and they were done. And Michael brought somebody else in, and um, so you know, it, it, it. You're just confirming what Michael told us that yeah, he was reaching out, looking for songwriters, looking for people who could help with that album. Yeah, and I think that was probably the way he probably sent Vinny in to see what Kevin and I had. I got that. Uh, complete distinct feeling afterwards that as much as he was saying, Hey, collaborate with Vinny, he was nosing around to see what we had because he was interested in producing 707. Uh, Jackson was so that I knew. So, you know, it was like, yeah, I like this. I like their songs. I like this. I like that. So it was probably, you know, as any, as any, uh, good, you know, producer would do doing due diligence. He's looking around for the best, the best to, 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 to serve his, his, his client, his artist. So, you know, I mean, who really knows? But yeah, and that that I often thought that. Oh, for sure. So we were being looked at, and, and uh, maybe under the guise of, hey, co-write with this guy, you can help. You know, so yeah, co 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 co-write, and we'll see if you've got what it takes to just do a co-write because I've got greater interest in using you for other stuff. Yeah, and so mm-hmm, and. Mm, I think uh, that was that. And then, want me to fast forward up to Peter Chris, or how do you want to do this? Oh, yeah. Let's let's chat a little bit okay. about Peter here. So let's talk about my Paisan Cascola. So uh, I'm 19. Now, I will say this. 
I have been friends with Mike Klink for many, many years. And, and, and for those who don't Mike, know, Mike, Mike is known as the producer of Appetite for Destruction. Oh, yeah. He's the Guns N' Roses He's guy. done a lot so, of other stuff, but that's what the oh, average yeah, oh, yeah. music but, fan would probably know. Yeah. yeah, everybody goes, oh, Mike Klink and Guns N' Roses. Oh, for sure. So um, I first met Mike. I think he was making coffee and... He was a runner at the Rucker Plan on 3rd Street in Hollywood, I think. L.A., the first time I met Mike, um, late 70s maybe. And so Mike was the engineer or second engineer on the Bridge album, the one that in 707 record I told you that was shelved uh, until, you know, until, until 2006. So... Mike came up from LA up here to Bay Area. We met again, got close, da 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 da, da and then we stayed in contact. That's 1982. So 80, I would see my couple times go down to LA. I'm doing some work. We get together, have lunch. 85, 85 when I joined. My old buddy Slick, Earl Slick, Slim Jim Phantom, and Lee Rocker. When the cats broke up, I joined Phantom Rocker and Slick. Ooh, I didn't know that. Album. I love that first oh, Phantom Rocker and Slick album. Yeah. So men, I joined men Without after Shame that. is a killer. Time. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's killer, right? So Slick asked me if I would do that tour. I did, came back, we wrote, did a second album tour, and then it blew up. So, 86. It blew up. Flick and I started a band real quick called NYC. Didn't get off the ground. Uh, and uh, so we parted ways. I joined my old buddies in Taxi. And we did a record. Bruce Cohen, who managed the Doobie Brothers and, and Night Ranger. Bruce was managing Taxi. Uh, and I did a record on MCA with Taxi in 87, 88. Mike Clink called me, thinking now, and said he was doing a band from the Bay Area, a uh, Mission District band called Sea Hacks, and he needed a guitar player. I love that. Player yep. Who played Who played my style? And Kev, I'm going to send you some roughs. Tell me what you think. Be honest. I mean, it's real garagey stuff for you. It might be a little beneath what you want to do. No, no, no. I listened to it and I said, well, yeah. He goes, well, I'm Chrysalis and I'm producing it now. So, got to know that, let me think now, Guns N' Roses was, you know, Welcome to the Jungle. There was a re-release on that, you know, and, and, Par and, and Paradise City, you know, it was a, uh, uh, Sweet Child of Mine was the one that broke. Um, so there was a re-release. So that Guns N' Roses, a lot of people don't know that Appetite for Destruction. That album did stall out like yep. for the first year. Yes, it, it stalled. Did. So then I'm on the cusp of Mike working on what's that acoustic Guns N' Roses that EP? Uh, oh, spaghetti incident? Uh, the spaghetti, um, yeah, spaghetti incident. Or yeah, something that's like acoustic. Okay, so he, spaghetti incident, isn't okay. it? Isn't it? Mm -hmm. So he, that's just I think something like that. Yeah, so Mike is doing that at the time that he is getting ready to want to start recording Sea Hacks. Um, he did some demos, da 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 da. So he sends me the tape. I listen, I go, oh yeah, yeah, that's cool. And so 
I'll do it. He said, I only need you 10 days, Kev, at the most. You know, just knock out the solos, put on some counter rhythm stuff. The, the, the lead singer, he plays guitar and someone, you know, blah, blah, blah. Oh, whatever. They got a vibe. I already replaced the drummer. I go, really? How'd that go? He goes, oh, they're a little pissed at me right now. But the drummer, I had to replace the drummer with a cat who could play. So I got a session cat. I forget the guy's name. I was like, and so I go, well, they're a three-piece band, you told me. He goes, yeah. I go, well, did they know I'm coming? He goes, well, by the time you get here, they will. I'm like, oh, okay. Okay. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. Well, two, 10 days turned into two months. Um, so two months, I'm on that record, Chrysalis. And a uh, bass player who passed away, Chris, he passed away young, uh, overdosed. He was a sweet kid. The other guitar player, Ron, he, he was resentful for me, me being there. So I will tell you guys that 90, hmm, I'll be conservative and say 90% of the guitars you hear on that album are me. Wow. Well, I All okay. Half the All way, me. Alex. I'm going on the record. It ain't, it ain't Frankie, what's his name, who came in after me, who called me. I got a minor solo in a video, dude. So anyway, so I got a additional guitars, and which was somewhat baffling to me after that. And I remember calling their management and going, what? So anyway, that's the record. I, I did that. And then I do another record with Clint, uh, F Machine, young artist, Simon F from London. It was more of a synth, Billy Idol kind of vibe. So I, I'm doing two records with Clank back to back. I finished Seahawks. I take a little time off and I start pre-production for this other album. I'm working on that for months. That one is on Warner Brothers. This guy's managed by Freddie Demand, who's managing Madonna at the time. And um, things looked like, well, yeah, so I, then they finish the album, then they take me over to we go to London and we're there with uh, 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 Russell Mulcahy, I want to say. Shot the video, a couple videos. Warner Brothers paid to have me go over there for a couple weeks to work two days. It was great. And then I go, ah, that thing didn't really happen. He got dropped before it came out. Very demand, management dropped him. Now Clink is done with that. Next thing I hear from Mike, he's up in Reno working on a Whitesnake record called Slip of the Tongue. Uh, Adrian Vandenberg, one of the guitar players, had injured himself, I guess. Vivian Campbell was ousted from Whitesnake. DC, Coverdale. David Coverdale, DC finds himself with no guitar player. Clint calls me and says, can you come up here and start cutting guitars for Slip of the Time? I'm like, okay. So I walk into a snake pit <laughs> filled with like, you know how big White Snake is at this time, you guys, right? You know how big. You know, yeah. you got to know how big in 1988, late 88. Yeah, they were at the peak. Huge, huge, right? Now, Coverdale has no guitar player. Tag, I'm it. I'm walking in to, to start cutting tracks on all these guitars. I don't know any of these songs at all. I'm learning them, charting them out, right? night and day, right? And I'm working on this stuff. So unbeknownst to me, he's talking to Steve Vai at that time. and Nothing's been negotiated yet. Well, I was down at Vai's house in Hollywood, and Steve said, he loved my playing and da-da-da, but he wasn't going to share the record with another guitar player. That's that. So, ba-da-ba. So, Adrian starts to recover, but he doesn't get to play on the record. Vi does it all. And David calls me at home and says, I'm sorry it didn't work out, Kevin. I was, you know, 
I really wanted that gig, you guys, because I was perfect for that man. And um, and I happened to really dig John Sykes. And I thought, well, you know, so in retrospect, yeah. <laughs> I heard later on, yeah, you, you would have been the higher. Vi's great, but you would have kept the blues in the band. And I was like, well, of course. So now I'm done in Reno and I'm back home for like two days here in Marin Bay area and get a phone call. Hello, Kevin Russell, please. I go, it's Kevin Russell. Hey Kevin, this is Peter Chris. I used to be the drummer with, with the rock band called kiss. I go, yeah, I know exactly who you are. And he goes, Mark Slaughter gave me your number and said, you would be great contact for me. I'm starting a band called the keep. Would you be interested in, in, in meeting with me, I'll fly up if you are. I said, well, well, sure. So we talked a bit. Really nice cat. He, 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 no pun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no pun, folks. The cat man, but he really was a sweet guy. And I'm, yeah, so he flew up. I picked him up at the airport. We went out to dinner. We hung. Came over to my place. We hung. Took him back to the hotel. And we, he and I got to a rehearsal place here. I knew him. And we went in and knocked around some ideas. And he went back home and called me and about a week later and said, you know, will you come down? Let's see if we can do some writing. Stay at my house. We're down the beach with my then wife, Deborah, and her daughter, Jenny Lee. And yeah, so I went down and stayed with Peter and he rode and he asked me if I, he already had a bass player, Joey Madera, and he already had Joey. And he kind of wanted a band of Italians, kind of unspoken, but it was spoken. And I said, well, I know a cat. You know, his name is Dave Amato. And so I called Dave and so the four of us, you know, it didn't, didn't work out. Um, but I spent a lot of time with Peter writing and staying at his house and uh, getting to know him. And, did, um, did you record um, demos uh, that, that, some, that got shopped? Demos. Yeah, I don't know about that. His then manager, oh, I know, Dave, Dave didn't want to sign. That's what it was. And I didn't either. His manager wanted us on the dotted line, you know, basically tying us up. I was like, well, we're freelance guitar players, you know, we've got to make a living. And Dave was, you know, playing with Cher at the time, or he was just off playing with Cher, I don't know. And I was doing that, and I was, you know. So they they wanted you to sign exclusively to this band and not, not do any studio session, any work with anybody else? Right, right. And at the time, uh, my good buddy, rest his soul, Clarence Clemens, the big man, had moved to the Bay Area. He was living in Marin. And uh, he and I became uh, friends, and he came to see me play here locally a couple times. And We became buddies, and he wanted me to help put a band together for him. Uh, the new Red Bank Rockers. So I was, um, you know, uh, you know, I had befriended Clarence at that time. So I kind of put everything on hold up here and went down with Peter, but there was no way that I was going to sign because I was going to, you know, start putting a band together and, and go out and tour for a while with Clarence and then do a record or however that was going to shake out. Was, so was Clarence aware it. Was Clarence aware uh, of your association with Peter Chris? Uh, nobody was aware of anybody. You know, I didn't. I didn't talk about anybody to anybody. I just 
talking about what I was doing with them at that time, but I was weighing out my best options. I don't even know that I was talking to Clarence about that I was doing White Snake. Oh, when I did some Pia Zadora TV <laughs> stuff, Studio <laughs> Hall, I did. You, oh my God, yeah, yeah. So that was a whole other thing. So I was doing some other stuff. Uh, Clarence was with Ringo's first All Stars tour with Dr. John and Walsh. And so that first tour, Clarence was on that one. And so, yes, that's how it was. There you go. So he was doing that and he wanted me to start rehearsing the band and maybe audition some keyboard players in his absence, but start putting a set list together of a bunch of songs he gave me in the keys. And he wanted me to arrange the set list and some medleys and top and intros and outros and da 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 for him. So that was, I was going to be the MD. So actually, to be honest with you guys, uh, thinking back now, Peter had been out of the scene for quite a while, even though he was the cat man. But you're figuring now he's out of KISS eight years, and so not really active, as to what I know. And the big man wants me to be his musical director. Well... That's yeah, you know, as, as you were describing that and the the demand that that Peter's manager was making on you, I'm thinking, listen, no dis- disrespect to Peter, Chris, and and his legacy and what he's created, but at that time, right. Peter was essentially nothing. He he, he had nothing going exactly. for him in 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 the exactly. music industry. So how how could they expect you to hitch your wagon to that? When yeah. when you, you you just got done with White Snake and Mike Klink's got you producing stuff and Clarence Clement, it, it seems like that's a no brainer. Well, yeah, and I I thought I thought so. So it was. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if there was hard feelings. I I think there was. I didn't talk to Peter for a long time after that. Um, but Dave Amato was the first one out who told me, I'm not doing this. See ya. And after he had a meeting with his man, we all had separate meetings, I guess, with this manager in, uh, I don't know, Century City, I think he was somewhere. I'm not sure. But went to the office. It didn't last long. I'm like, oh, no, man. No, 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 no. How can you expect that? I'm a freelance guy. I make a living playing guitar. I mean, I can't. You know. So, um, and then I lost contact with Peter. Mm, yeah. And then... Some of the songs we wrote, I think he ended up recording, or he went out on tour with a different lineup. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't he think tried. he he ever. I and Mark, you might know this better than I. Well, I'm pretty sure there's a there's a keep demo tape that is circulating, right? Oh, okay, okay, okay. So I don't know. I don't know if I I'm have, on that. I, I don't, I'm I don't sure know. I have that and some pen. What is it? The uh, pen Penridge, Penridge Chris Penridge Alliance. So, Matter of fact, I have stage designs for that, which is a whole different. Uh, but I don't think he ever oh. toured with the Keep. He did a few shows with what was that? Balls other, of Fire. Ball, Balls of Fire. He did with a the chick singer. Uh, yeah, female singer. He did a few shows with. Um, okay. But yeah, and and wasn't wasn't at some point Mark St. John involved with the Keep? I think so. I think so. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that sounds maybe I don't know. What was um, your vibe on on the music and the band as it was being created? Did it feel like to you it was something that it had potential 
I mean, uh, being no, being honest, looking really. back now. <laughs> no, not not really, not really. And the songs, no. And it was so, the logo, the keep it was so Kiss the K. It looked so Kiss. His idea for black and silver outfits, everything was Kiss. And I'm like, well, that doesn't feel right to me. I mean. Well, I don't know why. I mean, I could see why he'd want to do that for well, him. How was Peters playing at that point? Do you remember? Um, wasn't really good. Because really, he, I mean, he hadn't been an active since leaving Kiss. Drummer. He really wasn't an active touring musician. No, no. So um, I have to say that for me and Dave Amato, I mean, we were playing all the time and touring, and our chops were up. I mean, I was recording and, you know, I mean, I'm working, sitting next to my buddy Clank, 8, 10, 11 hours a day, sitting next to him in the control room, cutting guitars. You know, you, you better be on it. Your shit right. better be happening. Right. So, so, and I'm doing this and I'm running a band for Clarence and touring and, and, so, and practicing. And my chops were way up and Dave too. So we were like, huh, this is kind of feels like a, a three wheel cart here. Wow. Uh, Joey, I can't really remember his playing the bass player. I think he was decent. He was okay. I can't really remember. But Peter was kind of out of shape. I don't know what happened. Did um, Was your impression that Peter was maybe just hoping that his name was going to carry this? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe he might have thought maybe it had more weight than maybe it really did. I mean, to me, it was going to be a big... Uh, uh, cl- you know, playing bigger clubs on the circuit around the states. It was that going to be, you know, Tall Toad in Connecticut, and you, you know all the spots. So it was going to be that uh, Toad's place. That's what I meant. Connecticut. Right. It's going to sure. be that kind of that kind of band. Uh, not not a theater band. Not a maybe not even an opening band. Maybe, but it was going to be clubs, rock and roll clubs on the circuit around the state. Who who, who, is, who is managing him? Was it George Suet? I, I don't know. I forget now. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Somebody, whoever it was, wanted us to, to sign with that. And it was like, <laughs> for what? Are you guys giving us salary? No. Nothing's happening here. What's happening? So, And I live in the Bay Area. I don't live down here. Where am I sleeping at? Peter's guest room for I'm living at his house with his wife and daughter at the time I mean, what do you come on I got my own family and children up in the Bay Area <laughs> I mean everything it was nothing was really being offered I, I can remember now nothing was really being there was nothing really being offered to me let's cut to the chase and so you're I mean, it's not it's not like they reached out and said, we've got a record deal ready to go. We just need a guitar no. player. You know, that's a different situation. No. They they had yeah. nothing, it sounds like. They had nothing lined up. No, well, that was no, the story no. of his entire solo career. Yeah. Peter. yeah I, I don't exactly. think to be rude, but that's right. exactly it. He never did anything. Yeah, and, yeah. And, all, and it was, you know, it was nice to meet him, and I think it was cool and all that. And, you know, I mean... Yeah, and he was really he was sweet to me and his then wife and yeah, it was. Everything did did, was did you guys reminisce about Casablanca at all? Uh huh. Sure, sure. We talked about all that and and uh, you know we'd go out and drink and yeah and uh, mm-hmm. I remember getting a call 
at the house, or Peter did from Carmine, a piece. I've known Carmine. I met Carmine on that Nugent tour in 82, and we, I've known Carmine ever since we've been pals. But he called Peter because he was starting a new band called Blue Murder with John Sykes, and John Sykes had to meet and know who the guitar player was that was working on the new Snake record. And that would be me, although I wouldn't go on to be in the band, but that was me. So that was funny. So the four of us out on the pier, Redondo Beach at some jams, it strikes, rings a bell, some bar uh, out there. I, I can't really remember, but having beers. and It was and you, you Peter, Chris, John Sykes, and Carmine? Yeah. Oh, yeah. what a meeting. <laughs> yeah, Sykes was so, he had to know who, who the hell it was. Playing guitar in White Snake now. Who is recording? Who's that? Never heard. Never heard of you, mate. And I'm like, well, yeah, well, you're gonna. <laughs> doesn't mean you're not good. <laughs> but yeah. you know, he, he, he was Sykes. He was, you know, I dug up and he was full of stuff. You, you just jerk. You know, hey, you just jerk. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm, you go ahead. I'm good. No, I was going to say you just jarred my met. No, so so that was the tour with Ted. You did. And was that was when Carmine was with him? Carmine, because Sweeney was back on bass. Bass and, and, and Derek St. Holmes. St. Holmes was, was I, I, knew, was I saw 707. I couldn't remember what tour. Yeah. And that was the tour. That was the Bound and Gag. Uh, yep, Bound and Gag. That yep, yep, yep. I saw I that I saw you play then. I, I mean, I had did it because I talked to Michael about, you know, because we hadn't talked, we'd been so busy. And I'm like... Okay, and I'm like, God, I know I've seen 707, and I couldn't remember when. And uh, yeah, and it was the Rockets were on that, and Ted wanted a, a, a he wanted a Detroit guitar show. That was that was the tour he wanted. So it was me because he knew I'm Detroiter, and and Jimmy McCarty, of course, Rockets and Ted. So it was it was a good it was a good good show. It was a really good billing, right? I mean, it was good. And yeah, certainly I, a lot I, of remember, I remember. I remember that. Yeah. So, in Carmine, that's when I met Carmine. And then, right, so we fast forward to 80, I don't know, you guys, when we're talking 88, 89, somewhere in there, Blue Murder's just getting going, and they got the bass player from the firm. Seven, maybe? I can't. Maybe a little later. Maybe a little later, okay. Blue Murder? Because Sykes was already out, so think. He's For Blue Murder, it had to have been it had to have been between eighty eight and eighty nine, and there, I'm pretty there sure. There you go. There you go. Well, my, I met my wife in eighty eight, and we saw Billy Squire and Blue Murder opened. Okay. Okay. Right. And so Carmine tells me that they got the bass player from the firm. Yes. I go. You mean the fret, the fretless cat, fretless Tony cat. Franklin? He goes, Yeah. I go, Wow. Yeah, I dug him in the firm. I go, Wow. Okay. And so funny, right? And you know, so that is my kiss connection. And then I would go on to befriend John Regan and uh, who John said, I've been tracking you for years. He sent me a Facebook thing a few years back and said, I've been aware of you for years. I'm like, really? Because first time I saw you was with Frampton. I go and I was like, man, fine bass player. And, um, or afterwards, or before, somewhere before, and then, or, or who was it with? 
before Comet, I was aware of him somewhere. I might have saw him. But then, oh yeah, and then I saw him with Comet. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, and then I saw him again with Frampton. Uh, but uh, great bass player, great guy, just a re- really great guy. And so you know, and I'm glad those guys are out doing that. And, yeah, you know, well, John's, they're all nice. Todd. All those guys are nice. John's a great guy, mm-hmm. friend of the sure. show, as well as Todd. Yeah. Oh, Todd, I always have love and respect for Todd, boy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I'm glad they're doing it, you know? And so it's that, it is that six degrees or whatever you call it, you know? So, 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 uh, so Kevin, you know, before we... Huh? I want to make sure I give you the opportunity here. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. What is 707 doing right now? What, what, what's going on? Um, where can people follow you? Okay. Uh, people can follow me at kevinrussell.com, right? Two S's, two L's.com. And I'm play, I play with a singer here, uh, a new show. Here as in uh, the Bay Area? Bay Area, and, and we do some fly stuff. Uh, Atomic Beatles, which is my, I was asked to put together a bunch of rock, really rocked up, cool versions of Beatles songs. So oh, cool. it's kind of like, yeah, he, so he said, well, how would you describe it? I said, well, imagine if Jimmy Page did the arrangements and did playing and maybe used uh, Cheap Trick as his backup band or something like that so he goes oh i get it i get it so that's been cool i also do my own stuff i did a record called where's the justice that is on my website um oh about a year and a half ago um and i stay uh and i still do sessions when i get asked to and um and i continue to play play live and play stuff and and of course i'm a Big blues fan, big blues player, and I have a show called Three Kings, which is my tribute to Freddie, Albert, and B.B. King. And I play, I play mostly theaters, casinos, like that, fairs, that stuff. Uh, what we call the softer ticket sales stuff sure. for, for my demographic. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> for yep. Early shows. Yep. You get it. So, right after and, the buffet. Um, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. I'm... I'm um, you know, I'm I'm thrilled to be to be uh, still playing full time and being paid, and um, you know it's a blessing. And uh, who knew? You know, so all things. Uh, so you must know, and your listeners, and you guys. You know, I'm uh, I'm always um, um, thinking uh, forward and positive, and and uh, I, I you know I don't live life with regrets or resentments and get rid of all that stuff that's awesome well, the stuff we talked about the last hour or so you know yep. those are those just happen to be factual things that that happened uh uh you know to me or to us or the band uh, you know in those in those years but um it didn't blow me out of the industry it didn't make me sour on the on the on, on music uh, which it did a lot of my friends have left the music business and da 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 we're really put off by all the stuff that that happens um, and does happen and can probably continues to happen. Have have but you? Have I don't. You, go mm-hmm. go ahead. No, I said I really don't. Uh, I'm not that part. You know, it's independent. My CDs. You know, it's it's on all the outlets on the internet. And so I was told a long time ago, you guys either adapt or get left behind. So yeah. I adapt and. And, and is it a completely different industry than what I know? Yeah. 
does it please me? No. Do I think that for the most part, music has become mediocre where mediocrity is the norm now? Um, do I think for the most part that especially the younger generation is getting ripped off? Yes, I do. They probably don't want to hear it, but that's the truth. And, and nobody's writing those classics anymore. So good luck with that, you know? Um, and, and I am so uh, honored and proud to have been part of what is now considered classic rock. And I am in those books and uh, we are, we are part of that. I am part 707 is part of that. I'm part of that. And, uh, that's my legacy that, and I'm, I'm proud of that. And I think that was a, a great era, especially growing up in Detroit in the sixties, being a young kid learning to play. And yeah, so, uh, I'm grateful for that. And my parents supporting us. Which is huge. Having parents that'll be behind you is huge because some folks don't get that. Yeah. And I know, and believe me, and I've taught those students and their parents, it's like a hobby and it was never a hobby for us. It was a jobby, a jobby, not a hobby. Hey, whereabouts, whereabouts in the city are you from? Just curious. In Detroit. Yep. Okay, so originally around uh, uh, West Side, Joy, Joy Roden in Southfield, Joy Roden oh, yeah. Evergreen. No, very okay. well. Uh-huh. You know it well, and then I'm an East Sider, but year, I, I, I'm a contractor, yeah. so I know I know everything. Okay. Uh, oh yeah, I played East Side a lot, a lot. Yeah, that. I, I, sadly, there's not that many places left to play. I mean, in, even in the last. 10 years, you know, for anybody looking to do original music, it's, it's a tough go, man. It's a tough go. Yeah. And I still have family back there and, and friends and yeah, I know. And, and Phil Bryant still lives in Detroit, uh, Livonia. So yeah. Yeah. And I know, I know, you know, for every token lounge, there's, uh, you know, nothing. Token's still, token's still doing very well. Um, matter of fact, Derek St. Holmes just played their, Oh, a month and a half ago. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Still going. Uh huh. My mom lives not too far from there. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's it was it was a, it was a, it was a great time, you guys. It was a it was a really great era. It was a golden era. It was uh, uh, you know, in the eighties would become something else. You know, it just got yep. bigger and bigger, and the greed got more, and everything everything was big, just big, and it had to it had to change and so when it became a uh, uh nirvana pearl jam world sound garden um i was went back to playing blues with my younger brother was living here with you know, in the bay area with me so russell brothers so trio so we i produced and taught and played blues gigs exclusively and i produced a lot of a lot, about 11 or 12 records for Blues Bureau International, which was Mike Varney, Shrapnel Records, his blues label. Yep. So I got to produce, you know, some, some guys that I grew up admiring, you know, Rick Derringer and Leslie West and Steve Hunter oh, and Craig nice. Marino. Yeah, so, yeah, and then, and then a lot of metal guys, too, George Lynch and Zach Wilde. So I was busy producing in the 90s a lot. And so it was a, you know, it was a, 
Stevie Ray had had been, not, had passed away and it hadn't been that long, 1990. And so everybody was jumping on the blues wagon. I was already there. It was nothing new to me, but I saw this. But I saw an opportunity for someone like me that had deeper roots in it for guys that were wanting to cross over. So I think that's where Mike Varney tapped me to produce because he knew, you know, he knew that I could keep it uh, as honest as, as possible. Um, uh, and, and it was a, a good time and it still was somewhat of a record industry. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, again, the, all those recordings are still out there and uh, mostly Europe. They know who I am through that probably more than anything. So, uh, you know, yeah, I, as of late, I, I try to, I don't have to hustle as hard. I guess as you get older, you, you work smarter, not harder. So exactly, I, there you I, go. I, make, I make those things count, you know, you guys, and, and I, um, uh, I'm grateful, a lot of gratitude and blessings about where I am in my life today with my beautiful wife, Jonelle, and all our children are, the adult children are thriving and grandkids and, and I'm awesome. And, and, and playing guitar at 65. Yeah. So, Can't ask for more know. than that. Well, uh, Kevin, this, no, was, no, no. this was was a fascinating trip through musical history, much more than I anticipated. Um, oh, it, well, thank it, you, guys. It was, oh. it was great hearing all of the all of the bands you've been associated with and worked with. It's quite a list. Yeah, it's an impressive list. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I will say this, that my friend uh, Clarence, who we were friends, and I, I miss him a lot, and uh, he introduced me. He was always so gracious about this, you guys, but through him, I played on Mills uh, Mill's Silver Lining record. I got to record with Levon Helm. Uh, I got to record at, at Petty's house with, uh, uh, I forget now, uh, Harry Dean Stanton. And uh, it was just... It, very eclectic group of folks, but Clarence knew uh, people from all different walks of life and always, always included me uh, all the time. Whenever he could, he would. And uh, nationwide while we were touring. So I got to play with Joe Walsh you know, a few times and I love Joe and Clarence was that guy. Just so you know, that was one of the gigs that I uh, cherished and, and, and got to meet and play with Jim Keltner you know, the fabulous Jim Keltner drummer. So, yeah, you know, and it was great to play with the boss and Bruce would come sit in and come to the studio and hang out. So it was, it was great times, you know, good and, for you. Yeah. you're lucky. Yeah. To, yeah. You're lucky. Gee, do, yeah. do, 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 do I, do I want to sign with Peter Chris or do I want to play with Clarence Clemens and have the boss sit in? <laughs> Gee, I don't know. <laughs> no yeah, disrespect, don't know. Peter, <laughs> but. <laughs> well, and, and, and I will end by saying with my, all of my X707 bandmates, you know, there's only love in my heart, you guys. And, and there's no, no animosity or resentments from yesteryear. And I'm just so over that, that shit. I'm just so over it. So what is in store? I don't know. I know that 40 years, 2020 marks 40 years for I could be good for you. And so it would be in my heart to do something. Uh, I've already been asked by a couple of industry people if that would be of interest. So we'll see where that goes. Um, of course, you know, 
I'd love to take take a spin, take her around the block one more time. There you the go. Boys, you know? Well, you know what, and, Kevin? If if something happens, keep us keep us informed. We'll we'll let people know. And um, again, this was just a, a, a great interview. I found it musically. Yeah. The history here was awesome. Thank you. Well, yes. well thanks. I hope I know you probably do some editing. I hope I didn't drag shit out. No, 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 no. I mean, it, it was always like one more artist. I'm like, wow, really? That one? Wow, that one? So, no, don't worry. Don't worry at all. Yeah. Oh, good. You, get, you know, yeah, and there's a lot of people you know, and I will say this in closing, too, is that, you know, you want to think yes because, because you try to be a, a good person and you try to be a kind person and a loving person person and, and, and do that, the, the gentle, loving, kind thing today, right? So yes, in part, yes. The other side is really stay in contact with those people because at the bottom, uh, at the bottom of all of this, you guys, it's continued because they respect for my playing and my respect for their playing. And if it wasn't for that, that's the core. You'd like to think it's everything else, but it, it's the musicianship. And it's the respect that you continue these uh, relationships and network for so many years. Uh, and that's the truth. And anybody who says otherwise probably isn't really being forthcoming with the truth because it's based on, we know this can, can the cat really play. And so those are the people that I still talk to, to this day, you know, they're players, you know, and, and, and that makes sense. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, I know a lot of, I always said I know a lot of nice people who can't play. You know, <laughs> I don't talk to them all the time. Uh, you know, so um, I, I, I value those relationships and and uh, yeah. and, and, you, and you, you keep those going. And um, it's 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 and hopefully uh, and God willing, it's a longer life, you guys. And I'm going to go out the way BB did, and that's and that's my goal. And my wife says I have to. So very so, awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm going to keep doing it uh, as long as I can, you know? And, awesome. and uh, yeah, that's my life's work, you know, as well as a uh, husband and father and you know, all those other things, you know, but it's nice to be able to be in a position where you, you don't have to chase so much any, anymore. Right. And, right. And it's a long time coming, man, but I want to thank you guys. Thank you. And thank you. And, and, thank you. and all the best to you, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks for your interest, man. I appreciate it. Take care. Thanks. Okay, brothers. Bye. Okay, my brothers. Bye-bye. Bye. You know, guys, that felt like a a trip down, like a musical journey of history. Because, I, honest to God, I'm familiar with 707, and I've heard of Kevin Russell, but I had absolutely no idea all of the other stuff he's done. I mean, good well, lord. The Sea Hags thing. Sea Hags, White Snake. I love that record. Love it. Well, we probably like, miss stuff. We probably miss stuff too that he still, because that's how a lot of these musicians are. They just talk about it in a casual, like every, like, every, like everybody way. knows. Yeah, like I'm sitting at dinner with Peter Chris and Carmine uh, you know, Apice and, and, yeah, and John Sykes. John I'm like, Sykes. holy shit, what? You know? Yeah. I don't know. That just was crazy. There, there, there was, a, yeah, some crazy stuff there. I mean, you know, just I had no idea his involvement with Michael James Jackson, and that when he brought that up, it's like, ooh, there's a little piece of here's another person who, 
who was brought in by Michael James Jackson to potentially do some co-writing for Creatures. And, and I remember when Michael did talk about they were looking for any anybody. outside song yep. players. So that total that timeline and everything totally makes sense. And 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 then his his Peter Chris of like yeah the guy wanted me to sign an exclusive management contract. What am I no. <laughs> You got nothing. I'm going to pay you. You know, it's funny because he, what he was talking about was very much like what Mark um, talked about. The guy, who, Mark, Montague, 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 yeah, Montague, that's it. Uh, that you know, hey, I'm going to come over. We're going to write, but you know, <laughs> that's it. There's no money. There's, There's no, no money. Yeah, yeah. It, it just you know, it's it, one of the cool things about doing this podcast and and being a Kiss geek and having somebody like Kevin on. Without him knowing it, he's filling in some blanks or yes, or or building up. You know, if you heard a story, well, it's backing. This is backing up Mark's story. You know what I mean? Yeah, we want you to yeah. basically write here, but we're not going to pay you. Or that's not the. You know, you want to tell people like, you know, meaning like someone like Peter Chris at that point. This look, man, I got to feed my family. And and that would be the first thing. And again, I'm not trying to be because I know that some of the people who listen to the show think we're, you know, just so pro current band that we're, you know, for some reason against, um, you know, the original guys, which we're not. I love Ace and Peter, and we need to go into that. But you know, if if you were a musician like Kevin, you'd have to look. And he did mention it. He's like, you know, whatever that was, mid '80s or whatever, late. What has he done? Yeah. You know, what has he done? He's done nothing. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Again, just little tidbits that fill in parts of history, you know. And and yes, a lot of this was not necessarily Kiss discussion. But if you're a hard rock fan, I don't know. I just again, I have Mike Clink, the Sea Hags, White Snake. Uh, you know, it's Blue Murder, Blue John Murder. Sight. Yeah, you know. Great little stories that just, as a hard rock fan, I just loved it. Again, Michael, when we got off the phone, I'm like, fuck, I know I've seen 707. I know I saw I saw him at yeah. least once. Yeah. And as soon as he's like, oh, come on, like, that's when I saw them. Okay. They, for some crazy reason, if you would have asked me, and this this is just so stupid, I, in my head, because I don't know if you guys ever think about concerts you went to in the, you know, and keep and all between all three of us, we've seen thousands and thousands of concerts. But I always thought it was John Butcher Axis that I saw open for Ted then, and now I'm like, no, it was seven oh seven. Yes, yeah, but you got to remember again timeline. Back in the late seventies into the early eighties, there was always triple bills. Yes, and 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 back then it wasn't necessarily opening acts who could sell tickets because they didn't care. It was literally new bands that needed to be promoted. So I can't tell you how many times I saw somebody like Saxon on a tour. And it's like, oh, I can't remember which one, but I know I've seen him six times <gasps> opening for No, people. Tommy, no. I love Saxon. Or, or um, MSG, my, you know, the Michael Shanker Michael group. Shanker. How many times I saw them open. I can't tell you which shows it was, but I know I saw them. And, Dude, and, and, I, I bet you I sat through fucking White Lion half a dozen times. <laughs> I mean, that's mid-80s, lady. And I was not. Again, there's a band that I think the members of the band are all talented but i just never liked the band that that was such a great way to discover new bands and i i don't think i saw 707 because i didn't go to the reo 
concert okay. in Minneapolis. The best uh, opening band I ever saw in those 80s shows was 38 Special. They were absolutely freaking phenomenal. Just on it for the whole show. But I'd say 90% of the opening bands I saw for these different artists, I was just like, oh, God, shoot me now. You know what band, and this was before they had the big radio hit, um, I saw Kicks, K-I-X. They were really good. Oh, fuck. I'll tell you what. I just saw them last weekend. Amazing. I I saw them. um, What's the record with Cold Shower on it? <laughs> I love that. No, that, that it was. I think it's their second record, and Should they were on a package tour in, uh, and they were at Harpo's. And at the time, my band was playing Harpo's like every weekend, and I knew all the, you know, knew everybody there, so I was always there. And I remember hanging out with this girl, and I'm, and I'm like, you know, I read about these guys in Hit Parader. Let's just watch a song or two, and then we we're gonna go. And they fucking came out. And I became a Kicks fan right there. That was great when band opening bands. Oh, I let me tell you, I remember just being mesmerized by how fucking good they were. And, and I'm see, like, and that's what I'm always hoping for. Fucking huge. And then, like, I think a year or two later, that's when uh, Cold Sweat or, or what's the Blow My Fuse came out. Yep. Yeah. But they this was this was the tour before that because I think uh, Cold Shower was the single. Um, and I, I didn't know anything about him. I didn't even know that song at the time. I'm just like, oh, let's watch the first song, just because you, know, you never know. And right, fuck, were they fucking again? And then I went and I bought the, that record. and I bought the one before it, and I've been a fan. As a matter of fact, if you're a fan of theirs, that Funny Money stuff they did. Oh, Steve, I loved Funny Money. Isn't that great? That's a, a great, great band. Yes, yeah, I used to listen that, to that all the time. Isn't that a great fucking? Yeah, I love yep. that record. Yep. But, but see, again, we didn't happily surprise. Yeah. See, we didn't get that. Most of the stuff I saw was just unbearable. Absolutely unbearable. I mean, by, by the time you were into the mid to late 80s when hair metal was exploding, it was just all, it was just another hair metal band. But it was prior to the hair metal explosion that you would get these bands where you're like, yeah, maybe, you know, I, I, I always like to lump in april wine and shooting star back in the late 70s early 80s it's like i remember hearing that song on the radio wow they've got so many more great songs yeah but that's two great examples of excellence that that was they were great to see as opening bands but i we had to sit through freaking accept and vandenberg and and Wasp and except, all this is incredible. Except was great. And, and, and listen, Van, no, they Van, are now. Van, they are now. Vandenberg, Vandenberg back then was, you know, Adrian Vandenberg. I mean, he's a phenomenal player. Yeah, you know, they may not have had the... The songs aren't there. I think, well, I think what was also missing a lot of bands, and again, keep in mind, pre-MTV, the, the stage presence, the image of a band wasn't worked on it was a lot of these bands were just yeah, but four guys because they toured with this burning heart. no i know i know i know i saw them open for kiss on the lick it up tour i think it, that's exactly the point you know and i like except now they're great but with udo ugh. Oh my! Oh, all right. We need a new co-host. Yeah. You cannot dis Udo, Dude, Mar- Udo Mar- era. Fucking except is except. Mark, Don't Mark, worry. I we, love the new stuff. We we know but, we know Tommy's taste in music. Just roll right, your go eyes get and breaker, let's be quiet. Go get fucking restless and wild, and I'll wait right here. 
Tommy's gonna go listen to Cheryl Crow and garbage, okay? And no, actually, it should be the other way. Cheryl Crow is garbage. I love Cheryl Crow. <laughs> I like Cheryl Crow too, but I, I, you, I wouldn't Udo, go to a matter, concert. Matter of fact, Udo toured here. I think a year ago or two years ago, and he did nothing but the old Accept stuff. And that was that was a fucking incredible night, man. That was awesome. Hey, so, dude, so, sometimes I don't know how Tommy became a Kiss fan with his taste in music. I really because, don't. Because they because they've got they write really great songs with hooks. That's why it, I like it was them. like an accident happened somewhere in Tommy's <laughs> I youth. I like other metal bands. I like Motley Crue. I like Van Halen. You know, and some of these metal bands now that I'm seeing. I like a lot, like Autograph, okay? They've gotten so much better since they got rid of that idiot. Autograph? Yeah. They got one song. One song. My boyfriend, my girlfriend's boyfriend isn't me. I love that song. But like Queensryche, I really like him now. I think Todd Latore is way better than Jeff Tate. Look, I was never a big fan. I I liked the EP, and I liked Operation Mindcrime. That's pretty much it. Yeah, I, I didn't. I, and I, like I, really, I had high expectations for them. Well, um, and I, I like the newer wave of metal too. Like the stuff I saw last weekend at Rockfest. I got to tell you, that's another thing. Get out and see some festivals, and get out and see some bands. Here's some bands I want you guys to check out. First and foremost, one of my all-time favorites in this moment. They are absolutely. Yeah, off- I'm going to check them out. I've, awesome. I, you, yeah, you. Ice Nine Kills. That's another really great band. Um, uh, Nonpoint, they're excellent. Um, Rob Zombie, unbelievable. Um, there was just so much great music. Uh, oh, uh, Gabriel and the Apocalypse, Rachel Lauren. Uh, there's just there's so much great stuff out there uh, to see. Check some of those bands out; you will be blown away at how good they are. And remember, this is the guy who loves garbage and Cheryl Crow making no, these this stuff is heavy. no, because all of these all these bands are totally <laughs> very heavy. But you know what I like about them? They got songs with good riffs, and they are really fun to watch. Uh, Fever three three three. That's another great band. There you go. <laughs> I sound like Wasp. Listen, hey, as much as I dick on Mark about Wasp. I actually like Wasp. I mean, their debut album, amazing, debut phenomenal, phenomenal. You never listened to it, Tommy, because there's great three-part harmonies on that. Go, I tell you what, seriously, go listen to Love Machine and tell me that's not fucking incredible. Oh, I know that song. It's. In, it, I want to be somebody off that. Hellion, the whole and, fucking and, that whole record. Animal fuck like a beast. <laughs> Oh, there's yeah, that's creative, dude. That's that's balls. When that song came out, it took balls to record and release that song because it was everybody was like boycotting that song. We can't play that. He said, "Fuck and fuck a woman like a beast." I mean, it's I, I you know I don't. What do you want me to say? You love garbage. I do love garbage. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right, guys. So, uh, a homework question. I guess first question: um, How many of you are familiar with Seven Hundred Seven? You know, let us know. Have you? And were you aware 
that Ace Fraley calling to you was a rewrite of 707's Megaforce. Mark, you weren't aware of that. I was not. I was not. And, and I want to mention a couple more bands that I want people to check out. I'm serious about this. Five Finger Death Punch. You know, we've had Jason oh, Hook Jason. on. Jason, okay, yes. They were really good. Did you and see I Jason? Uh, I didn't get a chance to talk to him. was too busy. Um, but they're great. Um, Skillet, that's another newer band. Those guys are really, really good. They've been around for a bit. I'm, I'm... Yeah. Um, oh, Lacuna Coil, they were great. Static X, they were great. Kicks, like we talked about earlier. And, uh, hmm. You Rachel know, Tommy, and I'm not trying to bust your ball. You know, Luna Coil and Stab, those bands have been around, around for over a decade. Well, I understand that, but there's maybe a lot of people who have they're, no idea. They're, they're, who they're they new are. to Tommy. Yeah, they're new to me too. Yeah, Mark, Mark, you'll so at least get a la you'll get a laugh out of this. So, um, there was a post I saw yesterday from Loudwire magazine, which was like the ten or twenty up and coming bands of 2019 you need to check out. And I kid you not, one of the up and coming bands is Dream Theater. You gotta be kidding me! A band that's been around for over thirty years. <laughs> they called. Oh, and they listed Overkill as an up and coming. Oh my band. god! <laughs> it's just like, are you fucking nuts? Well, and I know some of those guys have been around longer, but the point is, is it's like I mean, these were all bands that impressed me over the weekend. Yeah, I, 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 I saw Overkill at First Avenue back in like nineteen eighty seven. I, I want to say even earlier than that because I saw them open for Motorhead and Slayer. I saw them with Megadeth, Overkill, and I can't remember who the third band. Yeah, was. I saw them. I've seen Overkill half a dozen. This is like up and up and coming band. Yeah, Who's the freaking editor who thinks that is right? <laughs> wow, that's weird. All right, that's so you weird. got your homework about seven oh seven. Are you familiar with them? Did you know that about Ace's calling to you? And, and maybe one final question. What was your favorite little tidbit or story, even non-KISS-related, that Kevin shared? There you go. I, 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 loved, I loved his little white snake tidbit. I had no idea about that. I got what, what I love is when I learn stuff like that and I go listen to the album, I listen to it with a whole different openness and appreciation of like, oh, this is actually somebody different playing on it now. Um, Facebook.com slash three sides of the coin, three sides of the coin.com, Spreaker, YouTube, Spotify, of course, and don't forget every Sunday, 8 p.m. Pacific, three sides of the coin radio, two hours of kiss music. I think one of our very early shows, we actually did a back to back of playing Calling to You and Megaforce to show people the originals of Ace Fraley's cover tunes. He's done a right. lot of them. Um, so that's it. We're out. We'll see you guys next week. So you love the show. Go to itunes.threesidesofthecoin.com and leave your review and rating of Three Sides of the Coin. Thanks. Download your free free copy of the KISS School of Marketing. 11 Lessons I Learned Working with KISS. The number one downloaded business book on Noise Trade. Go to books.noisetrade.com slash Michael Brandvold. You're listening to Three Sides of the Coin.
so you love the show. Go to itunes.threesidesofthecoin.com and leave your review and rating of Three Sides of the Coin. Thanks.